0: Now hear God's holy, perfect word from Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning right where we left off last week, continuing our study in Luke's gospel. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us give thanks together. Father, we humble ourselves before your word today. We have sung it, we have prayed it, we have read it, we have heard it. And now we ask you by your Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts with it. To humble us in all the areas where we need to be humbled. To lift us up and encourage us in all those places where we need to be encouraged. And transform us by your holy word we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. There are these small turtles about five to seven inches long when they're fully grown adults. They're called terrapin diamondbacks and they live in the water around JFK Airport in New York. And they come out of the water every year to lay their eggs in the sand. There is a place on the, on the sand there where they like to lay their eggs. But in order to get to that place from the water to the sand, they have to cross over one of the runways at JFK Airport. And at certain times of the season, there are so many turtles crossing the runway that uh, the control tower has to stop flights. They have to stop takeoffs and landings, departures and arrivals. And it's a little amusing to me to think about how many people's lives are put on hold, how much industry and economy and these huge jet uh, planes, these huge steel airplanes, are held up by the 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 the, the mating and and birth giving ritual of these tiny little turtles. It is incredible to me, and and how how all of this industry and 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 all of these people's lives are put on hold in order to to avoid interfering with the lives of a few tiny turtles. Now, on the one hand, when we hear things like this, we think, well, that's kind of sweet. And it is. It's endearing. It's noble that humans with all of our power and all of our technology, that we would inconvenience ourselves so that we can live as gently as we can with some animals who don't even know we exist. They don't even know that these planes and people have schedules and places to be. They don't know what we're doing for them. And uh, yet we're uh, doing this and we, we stop our schedule for their benefit. At the same time, and as we can recognize, yeah, that's, that, that is really, that is kind of neat. That is kind of nice. We might ask though, where is the same compassion for little humans, no bigger than these turtles? I have no problem with protecting and preserving turtles and allow them to hatch their eggs in safety, but how can the very same culture concerned about the lives of turtles establish institutionalized legal cruelty against baby humans? And this is just one example of how horribly and deeply our affections have been twisted by sin. That humans are capable of these incredible, compassionate acts. And at the same time, we're capable of unbelievable, uh, nightmarish cruelty. And we're, we're always getting mixed up. And confused about what is right and what is wrong when we're left to ourselves. You well know the proverb from Proverbs 12. A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Even when the wicked is trying to be merciful, he ends up uh, exuding cruelty. And we definitely see this in play every day as our society languishes under the mercies of the wicked because their desires are twisted by rebellion against God, even the good things they attempt are destructive. In Adam, in in our fall, our moral compasses were broken. And so now they always point us the wrong direction. When we trust in our own understanding and we lean on our own wisdom, we will invariably get it wrong. We will prioritize things that are not important. We will diminish the importance of things that are critical. We're always mixing it up. Now it's uh, in, in Luke's gospel today. We have a couple of stories right next to each other that highlight this tendency of ours to do the wrong thing, to make the sinful choice, believing fully, even as we do that, that we're doing the right thing. We, we pursue this, this wicked, twisted, corrupt thing, believing fully that it's the right thing. The first story is the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. A priest and a Levite walk by the wounded man They think he's dead, perhaps, if we give them the benefit of the doubt. And in order to preserve their own integrity, in order to preserve their own schedule, in order to preserve their own ceremonial cleanliness, rather than attend to his needs, they stay on the other side of the road. They don't want to defile themselves by touching a potentially dead body. don't want to interrupt their schedule. The second story that we'll read in just a few minutes is the story of Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha. And these two stories are put back to back in Luke's gospel. And you know that story as well. Martha is in the kitchen whipping up an elaborate feast, thinking this is exactly what Jesus wants. This is the most important thing for Jesus at at this moment. She's making a big fuss, we find out, about the wrong thing. She gets it wrong and Jesus gently corrects her. In both of these stories, put back to back as they are, We have people in both of these stories who are made to feel like outsiders, the Samaritan and Mary, but who are really, in fact, being faithful to God. And then there are the people who think they're insiders. They think they're they're really being faithful. And they're the ones who are absolutely not being faithful to what the Lord expects. Both of these stories present two different ways of living, two different visions of what it means to be Israel, two different Ways of being God's people, and 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 two different ideas of what it means to fulfill our mission in the world. Now it's fascinating to me also that these two stories, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the story of Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha, these two stories come right after the sending of the 70 that we read about last week. Jesus sent his disciples on this dangerous journey down a treacherous road, a road full of threats. And he tells them, as you go, here's how I want you to respond to rejection. Here's how I want you to respond to the things that you're gonna face. You're going out as lambs on this dangerous road full of wolves. And then immediately after this, immediately after he tells them this and they come back, we get the story of a man on a dangerous road. And, And this man on this dangerous road is waylaid, he is beaten, he is stripped of his clothes and he's left for dead. Is this, in fact, a dangerous road? The road to Jerusalem? Yes, in fact, it is. Here's an example of how dangerous this road is, the road that Jesus sent his disciples down. In the instruction to the 70 we read last week, also Jesus gave them protocols for how to receive hospitality, how to interact with people in their homes. And then We get the story of Mary and Martha, and they're two very different ways of showing Jesus' hospitality. This seems to also be an echo of Jesus' instruction to the 70s. So you see how this kind of uh, uh, folds in together. Jesus says, you're going on a dangerous trip. You're going out as lambs among, among wolves. And then he tells a story about a man who's beaten up on the road to Jerusalem, that he just sent them down. He says, here's how I want you to receive and interact with people in their homes. And then he tells a story. And there is the story about Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha and the confusing mixed up hospitality that Martha was offering. So then uh, as Jesus sends these 70 out, he also tells them how the people respond to them is, is how they respond to Jesus. Jesus and his people are unified. Jesus tells them, if they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And so we remember that contempt for the church is contempt for Jesus. Rejection of the church is rejection of Jesus. Jesus is unified with his people. He says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. I'm the head. You're the body. I'm the groom. You're the bride. Jesus is always reaching out and embracing his people and saying, we're together. I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. I'm living water out of you flow living waters. And so, so we don't separate what Jesus puts together. And so rejection of the church is rejection of Jesus. Think about that. When you dare harbor in your heart contempt for the body of Christ, Think about that when you dare harbor hatred and criticism in your heart for the body of Christ. He loves his bride. Why don't you? What's your problem? Jesus loves his bride. And so the question that materializes from all of this is how will the people actually respond to Jesus when he shows up in these towns himself? He sent his people on ahead and he says, if they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, they reject me. He sends them ahead to kind of, to till the soil, and now he's coming in person, what kind of welcome will Jesus get? Will he be received with warm hospitality, or will he be stripped, beaten, and left for dead? Well, we of course know the answer to that. And when Jesus is beaten, stripped, and left for dead along the side of a road on a cross, who will come to his aid? Who will stand with Jesus? Who will come to his side when he is waylaid? So these stories, I think it's important for us to always see, these stories don't stand alone as these little morality tales. The verses of Scripture aren't given to us so that they make nice uh, uh, calendars, you know, where you just put a little verse on a sunset and say, well, that's a nice little thing, and it stands alone. I think that's one of the problems with the way that we've divided the Bible up. It's very easy and handy to have reference points Chapter 11, verse 12. That's very handy. But I think one of the problems with that is we tend to uh, segment the scripture, and that's why I love this new kind of movement where Bible publishers are printing the Bible without chapters, without verses. I don't know my way around. Well, you know, well neither did the Hebrews when they wrote it. You know, neither, neither did Paul. Paul didn't write. 1 Corinthians 13. He just wrote, you know, the big, the big letter to the Corinthians. So, so we see these all connected. And I think it's important for us to continue to look at how these are woven together and to look at these connections that we can observe. So picking up where we left off last week, Jesus was rejoicing over the work of the 70 disciples. And then a lawyer stands up to test him. Uh, this lawyer is a self-appointed examiner of Jesus testing him for his orthodoxy, challenging him uh, for his whether he really has any authority or not. There's a whiff of antagonism in the question of this lawyer. He, he's not really asking for his own benefit. Lord Jesus, how do I obtain eternal life? No, he's grilling Jesus in front of everybody, hoping to expose him as a fraud and a heretic. And so the man says, What? Uh, uh, just to uh, quote it directly, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then uh, Jesus responds. Uh, he says, well, what does God's law say? He answers his question with a question. The man asks a question. He says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? You should know. And so the lawyer responds. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and he adds a little piece of Leviticus 19.18 about loving your neighbor. And there he summarizes the entire law and he does a beautiful job. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Bingo, you got it, Jesus says. That's right, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. Jesus agrees with the law? Really, that's what the law says and now Jesus is agreeing with it. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor, have eternal life. The lawyer likely thought that Jesus was doing something so completely different that there were no points of agreement between what Jesus was doing and God's law. And so he was hoping to catch Jesus out in some kind of contradiction or some kind of heresy. Well, uh, so yet here the lawyer has articulated this wonderful phrase that captures all the law and Jesus agrees with it but the lawyer's not going to let it go. He hasn't scored any points. He hasn't shown himself to be as brilliant as he really thinks he is. And so uh, Luke writes, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Verse 29, but he wanting to justify himself says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Even though he has stated God's law clearly, he's still hung up on some form of self-justification, asserting himself to be a wiser and more capable student of the law than than this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. Who is he? So, So the lawyer asks, okay then, buddy, who is my neighbor? He's trying to draw Jesus out and maybe Jesus will say something that will be offensive to these tight social and racial barriers that the Jews have established in the name of purity. And that's then if if Jesus can can breach that, that's something he can hold over Jesus' head. He could still the lawyer could still walk away feeling superior if Jesus even questioned the social constructs that were the product of Jewish scholarship of the of the day, that they couldn't even eat with Gentiles. The Lord God never said, Yahweh never said you can't eat with Gentiles. He gave them a specific diet that they were to abide by, but the Lord never said you can't eat with Gentiles, but they did. And they held this rigidly. And so the, the lawyer says, okay, who's my neighbor? Who am I? required to love? Who, who, who have I got to love? Who am I obligated to love? And Jesus answers again with a story. It, Jesus answers the first question with a question. He answers the second question with a story, which, you know, it just absolutely frustrates this kind of tight-shoed, you know, uh, 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 pinchy uh, attitude of this lawyer, right? I mean, Jesus is, is, is not giving him what he wants. And so Jesus tells a story on the second question, and you know how the story goes. A certain man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus doesn't say a lot about this man. He just says a certain man. He could be be anyone. We don't know his job. We don't know why he's traveling. It's safe to assume that he's a Jew if he's traveling from Jerusalem, but we don't even get his name. Just a certain man, and this man fell among thieves. He was ambushed. As you know, travel was dangerous in the ancient world. You you take your life in your own hands, especially traveling traveling alone as this man was. There were thieves and wild animals. You were exposed to the weather. If you were caught between towns at night, you had to sleep on the ground, you know, there's no highway system with rest stops and with, you know, Starbucks and with, you know, lights and and state patrolmen to help you out. There's there's or to write you a ticket even if you're walking too fast, I guess. But there, there's none of this there. Uh, you're you're out on your own. So this story is not an uncommon story. This man was not a special case. People got attacked by thieves. And this man was an easy target. So the thieves ambush him. They take everything that he has, even his clothing. They wound him and they leave him half dead. Now this road between Jericho and Jerusalem is going to get a lot of traffic. A man laying half dead on the side of the road is sure to be noticed. Help should be just around the corner. Except that the first man to come along passes to the other side. The first man we find out is a priest. He's got somewhere else to be. He sees a body. He doesn't know if this man is dead or alive. If he's on his way to Jerusalem, he may be going there to work at the temple. Touching a dead body would make him ceremonially unclean. Better just to mind your own business and keep going. Let somebody else deal with it. Well, then there's a Levite who comes by next. Uh, A Levi is a temple servant. He seems to check out the man from a distance, but he still passes by on the other side. This is somebody else's problem. This isn't my worry. What can I do? Am I a doctor? I'm not a doctor. I I I don't do this. This is not my job. What can I do? Now, the way the story is going, the lawyer might be expecting the next person to walk by would be an Israelite layman because you kind of see the progression, right? First a priest and then a Levite. And who's next? Well, just a layman. Maybe this story is, is, is kind of an anti-clerical parable. You know, we'll, we'll just talk about the corruption of the priests and the Levites, but it's the common man who really serves uh, uh, hurt people. Maybe even the next guy would be a lawyer. Maybe, maybe that would be the next guy to come by. Maybe a lawyer is the hero of the story, but he isn't. The next traveler on the road in the story is a Samaritan. And you know who the Samaritans are, right? The Samaritans were the descendants of the 10 tribes who were carried away into captivity in Assyria. They were mixed with other uh, foreign peoples and then they end up back in the land. So there's this, this racially mixed people who had picked up some idolatrous habits from the people that they mixed with, but they were uh, might've been and, and very well could've been descendants of the 10 tribes, the lost 10 tribes. and. Uh, and so they, they occupied this area known as, known as Samaria. It's, we, it's often assumed that the animosity between Jews and Samaritans was all one way. That the Jews just hated the Samaritans. Uh, the, the Jews just viewed them as another unclean, idolatrous people. But in fact, the contempt was mutual. Samaritans hated Jews as much as Jews hated Samaritans. You can hear this come out. Remember the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan. And what she said basically was, hey, y'all worship down there. We worship up here. We don't have anything to do with each other. What are you talking to me? We We don't have any dealings with you and you don't have any dealings with us. Both Jewish and Samaritan religious leaders taught that it was wrong to have any contact with the other group, and neither was to enter the other's territories or even speak to each other. You know that Jews would walk out of their way to not pass through Samaritan territory. There were a number of violent confrontations between Jews and Samaritans throughout the first half of the first century. Suffice it to say that these two groups despise each other. But in this parable, Jesus brings a Samaritan into the story. And the lawyer has to be thinking, anybody but a Samaritan, why? This is confusing the issue. How can he be the hero of the story? A Samaritan is the last person that would be expected to help a Jewish man. But in fact, this man had compassion on him, the man lying in the road. He ministers to him right there. He pours oil on his wounds to heal and ease his pain. He pours wine on his wounds to clean the wounds out. Alcohol is an antiseptic. He sets the man on his own animal, which means that now I've got to walk while this wounded man is on my, my animal. He brings him to an inn and he gives the innkeeper two denarii. A denarius is a day's wage for a Roman soldier, and according to one ancient historian, you could stay at an inn for one thirty-second of a denarius a day. They had smaller coins than a denarius, but for our purposes, one thirty-second of a denarius would get get you a night in an inn. One twelfth of a denarius was a day's rations so basically I kinda did the math I had to pull up Excel whenever I see numbers like this I gotta I gotta work this out so so the Samaritan left enough money for him to stay for about a couple of weeks about 17 days with a few pennies left over at the end it's time enough for him to recover and get back on his way you know a couple of weeks but the Samaritan does even more than that he says if it takes longer if he needs more money than that put it on my tab and the next time I'm through town I'm gonna come and check and I'm going to pay you whatever I owe you. The point is is that the Samaritan did more than the minimum. He did all that he reasonably could for this wounded man. And so after telling the story, Jesus turns back to the lawyer and says, So which of these was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the lawyer says, He who showed mercy. He doesn't say the Samaritan, does he? (laughs) He doesn't even say Samaritan. He says... He who showed mercy, he, he was caught. He, he knew exactly what Jesus was implying and stating in this story. And so Jesus responds and says, go and do likewise. You go be at least as faithful as the Samaritan whom you despise. And see, the thing that's funny here is the lawyer quoted from Leviticus 19, which is where we read, about God's requirement to love your neighbor as yourself. And he knows the law, but if he had recalled that entire section, he would remember that at the end of chapter 19, of course, again, here I go back, he didn't have chapter 19, but it's that same section, right? Where where God's law just says a little bit, a little few verses down, God's law says, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt I am Yahweh your God so love for strangers love for other races love for nationalities comes right after God says love your neighbor as yourself these two things can't be separated obviously God doesn't mean when he says love your neighbor that I really mean for you to only love people of your nationality only love people of your race in fact if I were to be honest, just love people in your tribe or love people in your family. Maybe just love your wife. Honestly, love yourself. When we get down to it, love yourself. That's what it means. No, obviously not. The answer was already right in front of the lawyer, out of the same part of the law that he quoted. The racial and social barriers between Jew and Samaritan was not one that God had put in place. This was just one more way that first century Jews were overreaching. They were trying to be more holy than God, taking God's law and saying, if God says we're not to eat the food that the Gentiles eat, then that must mean we're not to eat together. How do you get there? How how do you make that leap? Well, Peter and Paul have to deal with this later on, and we're well familiar with that controversy there but the message to the lawyer is clear you ask me who your neighbor is can you can you recognize the samaritan in this story as your neighbor this outsider the one you reject the one you despise can you recognize this hated man as your neighbor if you can't recognize him as your neighbor then you might be left dead someday um I want to make an application or two from that parable, but before I want to read the very next story, and it's only four verses, but I think it, uh, there are so many connections here. So at the end of chapter 10, it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. I really love I really love this little story. In fact, a couple of years ago, I spent a whole Sunday sermon on just these four or five verses here. It really is... Uh, There's so much going on here. Uh, We don't have time to cover it all, but there's two sisters hosting Jesus in their home. Martha, who is flustered. She is, according to Luke, much distracted at the prospect of preparing a really fine meal for Jesus and his closest friends. And so she begins banging around in the kitchen. You know how it is to cook angry, right? Slamming Cabinets and knocking things out of the kitchen, uh, the, the, the cupboard, and spilling stuff and throwing pots and pans around. Uh, Mary, all the while that she's trying to whip up this elaborate feast, Mary is sitting around in the living room listening to Jesus. Mary was literally sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his word. The, uh, sitting at his feet. Understand, that's not the position of a, of a groupie, right? Or It's not an admirer. This is a position of a student, of a disciple. We read that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the rabbi. That doesn't mean Paul sat at his feet, you know, blinking his eyelashes, you know, just in awe of what an amazing man Gamaliel is. That doesn't mean that. Uh, that means he was listening and learning and focusing on the teaching of his master, To sit at someone's feet means to be their servant. And that's where Mary is. She is learning from Jesus. She has taken her place as a disciple of this preacher of the kingdom of God. All the while, Martha's getting fed up in the kitchen. She's trying to pull off this elaborate supper. And she marches in the place where they're all sitting. And she rebukes Jesus. She says, don't you care that I'm in the kitchen in here all by myself trying to fix food for you people? Tell her to get off her hind end and come in the kitchen and help me. We've got to get supper on the table. Now, when she has this little outburst, a few proverbs leap right to mind, don't they? Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. I told my wife a few weeks ago, we need to monogram that and put it over the dining room table and just point to it so that we all sit down and the kids, you can't have a bad attitude. This is what, you know, we're, we're going to be happy here. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than fatted calf with hatred. Proverbs 17, better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. That's, that's another one. That, uh, you know, uh, the dinner time is a happy time. Uh, Sitting down at the table together is a sweet time, not a time for anger and argument and strife. And so Jesus responds tenderly. He says, Martha, he says it twice. He says, Martha, Martha. It's like he's trying to get her attention. Hold up, slow down. You're getting, you're spitting, you know, (laughs) Slow, slow down. He says, you're too worried. You're too troubled. You have too many things going on, Martha. We only need one thing. One dish would be just fine. Mary has chosen the good part, and I'm not going to take that away from her, he says. It's apparent that Martha had set for herself this level of hospitality that she was unable to attain on her own, and when her sister didn't help her attain it, she had a meltdown. And for that, Jesus admonished her. He corrected her perfectionism. She set a higher level, a higher standard, a higher higher level of expectation than even Jesus did. In that moment, for her, making a big deal about supper was of far more eternal value than sitting and listening to Jesus and learning from him. Her priorities were all out of order. And she might have sincerely thought that what she was doing would be most pleasing to Jesus. But in fact, what she did in the process was ruin the peace of the evening with her quick temper. She did something far worse than burning the roast. She did something far worse than failing to set a pretty table. She had this angry outburst that was ruinous and hateful and ugly. She destroyed the very thing she was setting out to achieve which was this perfect level of hospitality. She was her own worst enemy. And this is how it is with people who are controlling and perfectionistic, who set higher standards than anybody else can live up to. You kill the very thing you try to beautify with your attitude. Your attitude and your behavior is the ugly thing, not the supposed fault in the other person you're trying to correct, as Martha did with Mary. And in fact, it turned out that Mary was the one who was actually pleasing to Jesus. Martha was all beside herself over something that Jesus wasn't really that concerned about. In her mind, this was a big deal, but Jesus really didn't care about that. So so here we have these two stories back to back that invite us into the narrative and ask us to pick sides. What side do we pick in the parable of the Good Samaritan? What side do we pick between Mary and Martha? Who do you sympathize with? Who do you think you're most like? We typically want to see ourselves as the hero of the story, right? We always want to associate ourselves with the good guys. Here's an exercise though. When you read the parables of Jesus or when you read the Old Testament histories, put yourself in the place of the bad guy. Put yourself in the place of the one who's being corrected. Try relating to the worst character in the story. And you'll be in a better position to get all of the instruction that the story is intended to give us. Next weekend, we're gonna study the parable of the good Samaritan for a few sessions. I'm sorry, the parable of the prodigal son, forgive me. Pastor Rich Lusk is gonna talk about the parable of the prodigal son. And I know he's gonna ask you to read that story and to see it from the perspective of the older brother. We are in, in many ways like the younger brother who is forgiven, but in some ways we all are like the older brother. In all of his arrogance and all of his self-righteousness, there's a lot there that we need to be confronted with. And so instead of reading the parable of the good Samaritan and putting ourselves in the place of the wounded man or putting ourselves in the place of the Samaritan saying, thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of like the good guy. I, that's me. Put yourself in the place of the priest. Put yourself, find yourself in the place of the Levite and think, how am I like that? Is, am I like that in any dimension?" How often do I use God's revelation of himself to me as a way of boosting my own sense of isolated, individual, personal security and purity and I fail to follow his call to extend his love into the world? How often am I more concerned about preserving my own personal integrity, which, which for the priest and the Levite was their ceremonial purity, but for us, we might call our, our personal integrity, we might call that our reputation, our busy schedule that, that just can't be interfered with. I just, I just can't, I just can't do, I, I can't have this interfered with. Or, or our tight, clannish circle of friends. How often do we preserve these things and retreat to the safety of the other side rather than giving ourselves to a world that's laying half dead on the side of the road, that's been abused and beaten and naked and left for dead? How often are we like the priest and the Levite, Instead of reading the story of Mary and Martha, As if, oh yeah, I'm obviously Mary. I'm obviously sitting at the feet of Jesus. Think of how often we are like Martha, storming around, frustrated that we're not being appreciated, thinking that what we cooked up in our own brain is the most important thing for the kingdom. All of the hopes of Christendom rest on this thing that I want. And in the process, we crush the spirits of others. We destroy the peace and harmony of our friends and of our church and we end up losing it all. Both stories have people who think they're on the inside, doing the right thing. The priest, the Levite, Martha. In fact, they're the disobedient ones. Both stories have ridiculed outsiders who are in fact doing the right thing. The Samaritan and Mary. And they give us two different visions of what what it is and what it means to be God's people. Are God's people angry, prideful, frustrated, self-preservationists who make up their own standards of holiness or do God's people give themselves to hear Jesus, give themselves to hear what his standard is and, and, and conform ourselves to it so that we can give ourselves to the hurting and see that as our highest priority. We, we need this correction and we need to hear, hear God this way, because I said at the beginning, our meters are broken. Our compasses, the needle's bent. We aren't born with a perfect sense of right and wrong. Our values are all out of whack. In our sinful state, the things we think are really important really aren't that important. The things we ignore tend to be the most important things. We are bent toward selfishness. We are bent toward pride and arrogance. We are bent toward idolatry of the self. So then if we all agree that that is the case, our starting assumption can never be, oh, obviously I'm the hero. Obviously I'm perfect and righteous and holy, obviously. Our starting assumption must be, no, wait a minute. I'm messed up. My vision is blurry. My affections are fouled by sin. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the holy, perfect one. So I embrace him. I listen to him and learn his perspective on the world. And I go his way. And I want to think like he thinks. Now, as Jesus goes on this road to Jerusalem, and as we're going to follow his story, the challenge is clear. The question is presented. How are people going to receive him? How are the people in Jerusalem going to greet him? Are they going to be like Martha? Are they going to busy themselves to distraction, pursuing their own standard of righteousness, or are they going to sit at his feet like students, like, like Mary did? When Jesus is stripped, beaten, and left for dead on a cross along the side of the road, will the priests and Levites cross over to the other side, embarrassed of the shame of the cross? Or will they embrace him and everything the cross stands for? Will they identify with him? Or Will it be outsiders? Will it be Gentiles? Will it be Samaritans who come to his side? The same question is posed for us. Will we stress ourselves out pursuing all the things that don't matter, thinking we're hitting home runs in all of our success and worldly glory, when in reality we're not even close to doing the thing that pleases him? Will we identify him? Will we stand with him in all the shame and uh, disrespectful spectacle of the cross Or will we stay on our own side of the road, preserving our own brand of holiness all by ourselves? These these stories call us to embrace Jesus, embrace his understanding, to turn our minds inside out, our vision inside out, to see things the way he sees them, and to embrace life. And we'll do that by God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks for these uh, uh, sections of your word. And we pray that in these two stories that we would be corrected as we prayed earlier, that you would show us how, boy, how how often we're like Martha, how often we're like the priest and the Levite. As we meditate on these things, convict us by your Holy Spirit and bring us to repentance and then transform us and conform us to the image of your Son. This is our humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.